There's an historic battle going on now across the West, in Europe, America, and elsewhere. We have been sold this meme of Islamophobia. Total and complete shutdown. This is all wrong. We have to be able to criticize bad ideas. So you don't believe in equal pay? No, I'm not saying that at all. There's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. Because a lot of people listening to you will just say, I mean, are we going back to the That's because they're actually not listening. Hi there, you're listening to Illuminating Taboo. My name is Cassandra Boom. I'm a humanistic international development major, educator, and writer with a reading addiction. And I'm so happy that you're here. And I'm Lucy Barnes, co-host, and I am training to be a human rights lawyer. So um, today's podcast episode is actually a really interesting and also a really personal one. We're going to be talking about childhood trauma. And this is something that's really important to me and Cass. So I really hope you enjoy the sort of window into our life a little bit um, and the unique sort of experience that we're bringing to this. But we also bring in some stats as well. And we really discuss and intellectualize, that's not a word, but it is now, these topics which are unfortunately taboo and are leaving children uh, without any care and without any support for what is going on. So we really hope you enjoy the episode today. And if you relate to anything, let us know. We can't wait. So without further ado, we bring you Childhood Trauma. Hi, and welcome to Illuminating Taboo. This is the podcast where we talk about things that no one really wants to talk about, but in a compassionate way. We don't always agree, but that's the best part. So let's dance in some discomfort as we tackle some big topics today, once again. So today's episode is about childhood trauma, neglect, and complex PTSD. Starting with childhood trauma, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you some information about what that is, um, what that looks like. But first, before getting ahead of myself here, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Cassandra Boom, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Lucy Burns. So let's get to it. First of all, what is trauma? What I have defined here is from the UN Convention of Rights of the Child, which is ratified by Canada. And they, um, they signify it like this. A trauma is a physical or psychological threat or assault to a child's sense of safe, self, safety, or survival, or the safety of another person significant to the child. Regrettably, though, traumatic events such as abuse, neglect, serious illness, natural disaster, and war affect the lives of so many children in the world today. Those are some great statistics. And I also want to go in with, because I'm from the UK, and I want to talk about specifically the experience of foster care children and the extent of trauma that is often undiagnosed and undiscussed in modern media. Um, Currently, there are 65,000 children in the UK in foster care whose um, parents have essentially abandoned them, decided they didn't want them, um, couldn't put up with them, couldn't live with them, that kind of thing, which is automatically quite heartbreaking when you think about it, because it means that they may have never had their own caregivers love them or have an embodied in them how to love, which is just so sad, so heartbreaking. Um, And then in America, those figures are 690,000 children in foster care, um, which is even more heartbreaking. definitely considering how five years out of foster care in America, 60% of those children 
end up convicted of a crime, 75% end up on public assistance, and only 6% will have completed a community college degree. And when you really think about that, I think it's such a horrible issue because it's reflective in the fact that these people really don't have a chance. My, in me, myself, I was brought up um, from the age of 13 in foster care, and I did really feel like everything was against me and the odds were against me. And it's a really heartbreaking position to put a child in, especially when, as countries, we claim to have the rights of children and in the best interests of them at our core. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, And for example, 70% of prisoners in California spent time in foster care growing up. Um, And I don't know about you, Cass, but when I think about these statistics, my my heart really breaks. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. That's unbelievable to Mm -hmm. me. In in Canada, the stats are very similar. And I mm-hmm. like that the report that I found um, for from the UN Association was, it asked the question, who is more likely to be exposed by traumatic events? And you hit the nail right on the head mm-hmm. because the first thing that they mention are orphaned children or those that are in foster care. And yeah. there's something to be said about not having um, somebody advocate for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Because when you're foster care, you really do feel like you're alone. Is that right to assume? Absolutely. Yeah, it's an an encompassing experience because you really don't understand what is it about you that's so hard to love that both your mom and dad couldn't love you. So they gave you up. Um, And we will go into into this podcast talking about the long-term effects of childhood trauma and neglect, but it, it... it really has left such a strong imprint in me questioning myself and wondering whether I'm lovable if my caregivers Mm. couldn't do that for me. And another point I want to make is this is just foster care. Um, It is so hard to measure the trauma that a child goes through, especially as, um, I don't know about the system in Canada, Cass, so I can only speak on behalf of the UK here, but social services are famously underfunded So a lot of the time, children aren't even taken out of their abusive families. Um, Domestic violence isn't taken as seriously as it should be. And they're just there and they have to be there and they're not taken out of those circumstances. So they've only, you know, that's all they've ever known. And to only ever know violence and neglect is is truly painful. Um, And the fact that they don't pick up on patterns, I know it's quite difficult. um, But for example, uh, my first suicide attempt, I was six years old. And the the social services didn't do anything. They didn't think there's a problem here. Why is a six-year-old girl jumping out of a window? They they didn't they didn't pick it up. They just didn't really the you know, they just didn't they didn't care. It didn't feel like they cared. So when you grow up in that environment of those, and that was before foster care, of people letting you down, truly the statistics we've just discussed cannot reflect the amount of kids that are actually really suffering. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Oh, my heart just broke a little bit. That's so intense to hear. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for sharing. And this is the kind of information that nobody likes to talk about. Absolutely. This is the kind of information that nobody likes to say. Um, as far as as underfunding goes, I think mm-hmm. they could always use more funding. But as far as children aids um, of Canada goes, they what there's there's federal funding but they mm-hmm. also have like city specific fun- funding based on 
um, the need of the specific provinces and the cities within them. So in the Niagara region, for example, they are in my in my in my opinion, it's one of the biggest complaints is actually um they they take the kids first and ask questions second. Yeah. So they're like a, they're they're a force to be reckoned with. Um yeah. and they work with the police. And they work with the police. So anytime there's um a situation where there are children in the, there's a call and there's children involved or there's children there, even if they're not directly involved by what's going on mm-hmm. um on that police call. Somebody from Children Aid um, come comes down and and scoops up the kids mm-hmm. right away, no questions asked, and then and then or you can sort it with the police later. So oh, um, that's that's good. In my books, it's good. I've, I've yeah. I've, but uh, there's is it enough? Is it enough? Because it seems to me that um, the priority of the foster foster care system, at least the local one here, is always to go back to bring the children back, reunite them with their original family, um, and that's very interesting to me because, like you said, the way in which trauma affects people varies varies so much tremendously, mm-hmm. and um, and the way in which trauma manifests in somebody's lifetime doesn't necessarily happen right away. So um, when it comes to childhood trauma specifically, that's the interesting thing I'm, I'm reading about now in these studies that I've heard is that, um, for example, the prevalence of trauma obviously increase with the amount of traumatic events in somebody's life under the age of 13. Um, However, the age at which the trauma manifested was really interesting to me because this study, um, for example, suggested that based on where it was in your lifetime um, and, and based on the, your attempts to heal that trauma and really work through that trauma, you can hold on to it for like, um, it, it keeps score, but you can hold on to it for a long time and, mm-hmm. and only have, for example, um, one of one of the things that people notice here, I only have like a full on mental breakdown after the age of 50, 60 years old. Wow. And 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 then you start asking questions like, where does it come from? He mm-hmm. was so normal. What does that? But that childhood trauma that never got resolved in the beginning mm-hmm. will, you know, it will eventually surface. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that is spoken about less is how the body actually remembers the trauma way more than the mind does. Because to go into self-defense survival mode, Mm -hmm. the brain will try to shut off memories that are too painful to ensure survival. So when that's the case, the body acts as a container for it. And people harbor that without realizing, you know, people get autoimmune disorders, um, they get chronic fatigue, they get migraines, and even asthma. These, in in clinical studies that have been um, taken, these can all come back to trauma. So it's not even the mental element always is that that comes back to bite it's Mm -hmm. it's it's the body as you say like 60 years old to realize is honestly shocking um but it's way more common than we think and that's a massive aim of our um us on illuminating taboo today because we need to be able to shed a light on it 
for it to be able to heal and for others to be more comfortable talking about it because currently it's such a dark topic and what what is remaining a dark topic can never come to light absolutely and it's almost um and things like this um like isolation is mm-hmm. is a, a place where oppression really thrives so when you're speaking about a population of of children children that are you know subjected to a traumatic event especially mm-hmm. and they're powerless right sometimes mm-hmm. they don't get so lucky they don't get um the state involved in their mm-hmm. in their situation you know what i mean yeah for example in canada there was 85,000 cases um, for children being physically, sexually, physically or sexually abused, neglected, or emotionally maltreated or exposed to intimate partner violence. That means that based on that, um, like it's, it's, just, it's just unbelievable to me how prevalent it is and how mm-hmm. little it's talked about. It's, it's almost like um, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil mentality has has taken over the globe because nobody wants to look at it. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to look at it. We're all looking at develop. For example, my first career um, was international development, and my knowledge of of absolutely every single statistic um, in a given country in Africa was so much stronger than the knowledge of this the same in my own backyard. Even if I come from a developed nation of Canada, it's not, it doesn't mean it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Even within, and I think we, we do a good job pointing at other people's problems, especially other countries' problems. But within our own backyards, often the numbers would shock us. The numbers yeah. would shock us. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the problem. We don't necessarily want to want to have that bear the burden of that shock um, to a lot of people who have been brought up with very stable parents. They often think that this is just too abominable um, to comprehend. And it's it's the very nature of childhood trauma transcends language itself because you barely have the words for it. So, and if you as a sufferer barely have the words for it, then. I can imagine how hard it is for someone else to comprehend that. And also I think that a massive problem is the way in which we almost, we only really tend to be moved when the trauma is of like a sexual or really extreme physical nature. And people, Mm -hmm. because of that, saying things such as my childhood wasn't that bad or my childhood you know wasn't as bad as yours it's mm-hmm. fine it's probably fine it's normalizing patterns of abuse and neglect to the point where we've put it on a spectrum and we're now comparing pain and that pain will not get healed if we're constantly comparing it to the extent of how others have suffered absolutely especially because it's very unrealistic to compare pain mm-hmm. and and um, I had a conversation with a gentleman from a yoga studio that I go to, and he used a phrase that was very interesting, interesting to me. He called it the oppression Olympics. Wow. As, as if everyone is battling for that, you know, who is the most oppressed? But, it's, but I found it very dehumanizing because at the end of the day, all of those people are hurt. All mm-hmm. of them are hurting. It shouldn't be a contest of who's more important than who, and it shouldn't be a matter of which abuse is mm-hmm. more severe than the other. You know what I mean? Like, 
at the end of the day, the way in which our body processes trauma and our brains process the trauma or fail to process the trauma um, will have a, an, a, an effect on the greater population. Absolutely. So making, Absolutely. prioritizing childhood or developmental trauma is literally increase, improving your future. Because some of the effects, like you were saying, some of the stats that you shared with the crime rates and the, mm-hmm. you know, it's unbelievable to me. So I wanted to quickly move on and um, on our discussion and say, what can cause trauma? I know we, we quickly touched on a little bit of what can cause trauma, but um, one of the ways in which this study here I'm still looking at that same study from the UN Convention of Rights of the Child um, that they categorize trauma into seven categories. Um, number one is um, a, number one is a frightening experience that was thought about years afterwards. Number two is even a parental divorce. Now think about how prevalent divorce is and how traumatic that can be for a child Mm -hmm. and how displacing it can be for a child. Trauma has levels, but all of them are, all of them affect the body and all of them deserve attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Other ones on the list include um, family problems due to substance abuse, um, physical abuse by someone, sexual abuse, of course, being one of the um, most obvious ones. but even being sent away from your home for, for doing something wrong, um, it's all of these things can have can really take a toll on the mind and the body mm-hmm. um, in children. Absolutely. The way in which your primary caregivers treat you shapes the very eyes in which you see the world through, I think. And, you know, it, it, even if, you know, if you have an alcoholic parent, then you are so much more likely to grow up and be an alcoholic because it's all you've ever known. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we think about the real roots of a lot of problems, such as crime, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, I bet most of those stem from trauma at the root. And we will not get anywhere in society if we keep attacking the fruits of it. And that seems to be what's happening. And we don't realize the link between the causes of trauma and how people turn out in later life. And we don't have the compassion because we want them to be 100% responsible for their actions. But Mm -hmm. truly, you know, it might be a bit of a philosophical question, but can you be responsible for your actions when you act in a way just as your parents did or in absence of what your parents did? Absolutely. That's a very good question. And Mm -hmm. in my humble opinion <laughs> and and just based in, based on being being a mother and seeing how how much like actions speak louder than words like how much my mm-hmm. children are already imitating me and are already pretending like even while they're playing on their own time like the words coming out of their mouth the, the little expressions and slangs are all words coming out of the mouths of my husband and I so mm-hmm. we're being very mindful in the way in which we communicate because Every like they're absorbing so much. Even if you're not sitting down and teaching them things, children absorb so much, and and it becomes a conditioning. Right? We are literally the way that our brains develop. Um, it's it's fascinating. It's beautiful, but it can also prove to be problematic if mm-hmm. the stable in which your brain is developing is not one that is safe. 
Yes. And that's what it ultimately comes down to is safety. And I hear a lot of people that say, you know, my parents did their best. um, And we really have a problem with distinguishing between a person, a parent, a caregiver who has harmed us and that action from who they are as people. And I think Mm -hmm. that that really serves as a barrier to, to healing because we constantly justify actions based on it, you know, based on the fact that they did their best. But sometimes even doing your best can harm your child. Um, and you know, it's not easy being a parent. I don't know that personally because I'm not a parent, but there are things in which that you could do, um, and you don't realize it affects the child. Like, um, for example, having a mother who cares more about getting her needs met than the child's and she may mean well, Mm -hmm. however, that that's going to affect the child and make that child grow up thinking that it's on this planet to serve other people. Absolutely. So let's move on to, because we have so many things to cover today. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for that point. Let's move on to complex PTSD. Yes. Um, could you have it and not realize? And Def- what is it? Definitely. So complex PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, but over a uh, elongated or um, sort of wide t- time frame. So, for example, in domestic violence, it's unlikely that you will just be harmed w- one have one traumatic event that causes PTSD. You know, it's quite regular, and you get hurt a lot, and then that body comes up and builds up. Sorry, and creates what is known as complex PTSD. However, um, Bessel van der Kolk, who writ, uh, wrote The Body Keeps the Score, which is the most fundamental book on trauma that I have ever read, and it's so, so powerful. He is really trying to get developmental trauma disorder uh, diagnosed in the diagnostic manual because he thinks that it's entirely different and it will reflect the specific developmental needs and um the developmental problems caused at, as a result of neglect and abuse, um, specifically through childhood. But currently, that has not been recognised because the DSM, um, the Diagnostic Manual, say that it's a niche, which I quite frankly find horrifying, um, actually, and goes to show how little is known about the developmental problems that children face after having mm-hmm. periods of neglect and abuse. Um, so, you know, he, he proposed that in 2013, I believe, and I'm really hoping, and I'll do everything in my power, certainly to get that recognized. Cause I do think there's a fundamental distinction between complex PTSD and developmental, um, trauma disorder. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, especially when it comes to matters of the minds, the way in which our mind, our brains are even designed, like mm-hmm. nothing can live in isolation. Mm-hmm. All of those neural pathways are connected in some way, shape or form. So yes. I definitely see that. I think, um, and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what if, what if, what about the role of hyper-specialization in, in the medical field, making making things like, for example, like why why wouldn't they intersect? Why wouldn't they be able to mm-hmm. have a conversation that correlates um, complex PTSD and and developmental trauma? You know what I mean? In yeah, my mind, absolutely. those are completely different fields. <laughs> I'm wondering if those people even get the opportunity to interact. Yeah, um, I think that's a very good point, and I think it's interesting. But I, I think ultimately, it comes down to um, memory 
a lot of traumatic incidents aren't even remembered by the brain at all. Mm -hmm. The brain stores trauma in fragments, like um, you'll remember a specific smell, but you don't know why you remember it and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I think that trying to comprehend that when someone goes to a doctor, that's their first protocol because something's really wrong, whether they're tired, feeling depressed, you know, anxious, Mm -hmm. they go to a doctor, but a doctor isn't qualified to sit and say, tell me what happened in your childhood because that's not going to be their instant response. And this is the problem. And we are diagnosing things as the symptoms rather than the cause, which is trauma. Absolutely. And I think that one of the one of the challenges um, for complex PTSD is that it might also, um, you know, encourage certain behaviors that that tend to be generally accepted. For example, mm-hmm. the abuse of alcohol or or drugs. You know, yeah. like it's it's kind of like something we've come to accept. You know, have a beer or two. It's okay. It's been a long day. Like so me doing it because I'm trying to, you know, um, numb my PTSD or trying to mm-hmm. find a way to navigate this, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of my own mind basically, or me doing it because I'm a fun party girl, there is no distinction anymore. No, and absolutely. I, and I feel like, um, that becomes a problem as well, especially because some of the other behaviors on this list here that I'm looking at from medical news today, um, is avoiding unpleasant situations by becoming people pleasers, mm-hmm. lashing out at minor criticism. Yeah. Like, um, these things are, you know, it's very hard for me to, for people in general to relate it to something like yeah. that. Like we go to a a medical doctor for a lot more things Mm -hmm. than we should. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us should consider seeing a psychotherapist instead, a psychoanalyst instead, because medical doctors are limited Mm -hmm. um, with what, you know what I mean? You show them the symptoms and it can always be so many, so many more things than what you're showing them. Mm -hmm. And they're very skilled at treating symptoms. Yes, yes. Like you said, not getting to that root cause. Absolutely. And I think that's why the role of therapy is so, so vital um, in really getting to that, specifically psychoanalytic therapy, which is the Mm -hmm. current form that I have, um, and really making links that I never would have made between my childhood and partners that I had ended up in, which, you know, mimicked some of my childhood. Um, And there is a lot of scientific backing behind why that was the case. So my mom was subject to a a boyfriend who was extremely violent. And a lot of the focus of his violence was me. Um, I'm a very protective person. I tried to protect my siblings and often that resorted in quite severe beatings. Um, And he was around for, for many, many years. And then in 2019, I was in a relationship for a year with someone who beat me physically a lot. Um, and I kind of really wondered, why is this the case? You know, I was so angry at my mom for staying with this guy and I hated him. And then I get into this relationship with someone who's just like him. Um, and it wasn't until I'm out now, by the way. So don't worry, everyone listening to this uh, best, best decision I made. But um, re- reading Vessel van der Kolk's book, there was a study actually conducted. And this is so interesting, Cass. I think you're going to love this mm-hmm. on dogs 
where they, which is unfortunate because I love dogs. So I'm sad this study was taken on them. Um, but it reveals quite a lot where they um, had dogs in a cage and they would, would zap them with electromagnet or something, you know, that was very painful when they zapped them. And they basically then opened the door to the cage, allowing them to escape. And the ones that stayed in the cage were the ones that had already chronically been zapped many, many times. And the ones that fled through being zapped once just absolutely ran out. But the ones that didn't were the ones that were subject to beatings and trauma before, which is a strong indication that when you go through so, so much when you're young, you get used to it. And that becomes what's familiar to you. Mm-hmm. And it becomes the basis of what you are magnetized towards in your future. Mm-hmm. And, and we really need to get, as a society, understanding this. So we get out of this, you know, victim-blaming culture that we have. Like, why did she stay? It's like, that's the biological reality of what anyone, given the complex PTSD would have done in those circumstances. And I think those studies are so interesting for that and really understanding why that's the case. Absolutely. And I and I read that book too. And I remember that part quite distinctively. Mm-hmm. And the body keeps score really opened my eyes because my experience, my personal experience with trauma, because Barnes has shared so much and Boom has been so, so quiet for once about my own because I have this inhibition about sharing. I feel like mm-hmm. I, I hate, I'm, I hate sympathy. Mm-hmm. I, it's like, it repulses me. I'd rather, I hate pity. You know, I don't want people to feel bad for me. So I, I usually keep it under wraps, but because you've taken the time to listen to this podcast, you're getting a <laughs> one-time exclusive. I don't really speak about this, but my, in my family, in my household, um, my father was an alcoholic and um, and probably suffered other mental health problems, but we're not going to go there yet. But mm-hmm. he was very abusive in every single way um, mm-hmm. to my mother, never towards us, never laid a finger on us, mm-hmm. but towards my mother right in front of us. And it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. He might as yeah. well have beat us senseless as well because yeah. we were the ones left with the unconscious mom. Mm-hmm. Um, having to figure out what to do. I've called the police many times, um, thinking my mom was dead. My and goodness. and we ended up in a women's shelter. And at this shelter, the children that have have been subjected to the violence um, were obligated. In order for mm-hmm. us to stay there, the children were obligated to go into psychotherapy. The, the parents wow. had a choice. So because I was under the age, I was six and under, and then my brother was four, and then I had a toddler brother, we all had to go to psychotherapy and developmental psychologists. And I, and I haven't stopped since. That is I amazing. Since. Um, at first I thought, probably because I'll need help forever. And I thought it was because of me, like I'm broken. But no, I haven't stopped going since because it's really changed the way in which I perceive my life and my, my events. It really changed and it helped me as well um, let go of the things I couldn't change, which mm-hmm. is huge. Um, I love the fact that um, the author of The Body Keeps Score uh, uh, mentions the correlation between shame and trauma. 
Yes. How a lot of trauma that we hold in our psyche is encrusted, just absolutely yes. embedded with shame. We don't even want to talk about it. We yeah. don't even, we don't think we're afraid to to scare people away with how dark our darkness is. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. we're afraid that we'll, they, they won't know what to say. We'll kill mm-hmm. the moment. They won't, you know, there's never a good time to bring up something mm-hmm. like that. Like, no, absolutely. And I, and I think that that's so, yeah, it's, it's so true. But the, you know, the body keeps the score in that regard because what people don't realize is, you know, the rational brain will tell you there's no reason for you to feel ashamed, but your emotional brain, your subconscious emotional brain, which is the one that takes control when you go through and you're subjected to trauma, Mm -hmm. that's the brain that is speaking. So even when you can rationalize and say, of course it wasn't my fault. And of course I don't need to be ashamed that this happened to me when I was little. Your brain doesn't know that. Your brain is not registering it like that until you go through a certain amount of therapy and realize that yourself. And you have to, and that's way more than words. You know, you need to be in tune with your body to actually recognize that because I, for a long time said, you know, I love myself. I love myself. Why would I, you know, and I didn't. Um, I didn't at all. And my body knew that because I was Mm. suffering with chronic fatigue and I had various other mental health problems like depression and anxiety, um, which since having a therapist, although I still have PTSD, I no longer have um, depression and anxiety, which goes to show that all along it was trauma. Wow. That's so powerful. And knowing is better than not knowing. Absolutely. Um, so you're on your healing journey. I'm on my forever healing journey. Tell me about what has been effective. Um, I know you still suffer from the complex PTSD, but has there been anything that has helped you along the way? Um, honestly, my partner, um, and therapy, those are the two things, um, and books, three things, three mm-hmm. things that have been so crucial for me in A, understanding it was not my fault, B, with my partner, feeling safe. Um, mm-hmm. And I ran from him uh, a lot. So we've been sort of on and off for six years. And um, before I met my partner, who was extremely abusive, um, the Voldemort, we'll call him. <laughs> the Voldemort partner. Yeah, exactly. That was after my other partner because I relentlessly pushed my current partner away because that was all I ever knew, knew. And I did not know safety and stability. So I was like, what is this? And ran um, essentially straight into the arms of what I did know, which was trauma, which is really heartbreaking when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but rekindling with my partner and him seeing the depths of my dark shadow self and my unconscious brain and him loving the whole body of me really was essential for me in my healing he like held a mirror up to me and his love of me helped me love myself because he didn't just pick and choose what he loved about me he loved the whole package and it really created a safe space for me where I could talk about all the disturbing things that happened and he wouldn't he wouldn't run, which is what I thought people would do when they heard. They would run or they would be pity me, exactly as you say, mm-hmm. Cass. And I was so terrified of being pitied. And he didn't do that. He never did that. So mm-hmm. a loving partner and loving friends is so important because you, your body has to register that the, the threat is over and it's okay to be safe now. 
Mm-hmm. And that took a long time um, because you're going against what your body knows. And that is brave. Loving my partner is so brave. Yes. And I see that. Um, and then books, honestly, reading books, bibliotherapy is amazing. <laughs> honestly, um, you know, I started Googling things that I would identify myself and wanting to really understand. And they have really, they're like a hug in the pages. They just sort of like cuddle you and console you. And when the author's really compassionate and saying, you know, you're not diseased or broken, this is just something you went through that wasn't your fault it's just the voice that you need sometimes um mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. and and then uh, psychoanalytic therapy was has been crucial for me and really digging up even the things that i didn't remember so there was so much in from my um, childhood cast that i just completely pushed to the back of my brain yes and it has been psychoanalytic therapy that has really brought my subconscious to my conscious brain which means i can heal from it now so mm-hmm. I'm like you and my healing journey is forever in, in, in the pro- in progress sign. But um, how about you? And have you got any other methods other than those? For me, I've really focused on um, creating my five doctors. And mm-hmm. I know, and I think the reason why it's this simplistic, the language is this simplistic is because I literally went to therapy when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So I think the therapist did a really good job at making it bite-sized enough for my little brain to understand at the time. <laughs> um, but it's five, stick to the five doctors, pick five doctors, five things that you do, that you can do to, to make you happy. Mm-hmm. Whatever those five things may be, um, now they they always have a list of suggestions because they they're, they're like you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that's show that when you exercise, happiness hormones and dopamine and, and endorphins are on the rise, which is mm-hmm. amazing. You know, serotonin, like all of these things are amazing for you. So consider adding exercise onto your list. So that's that's been on my list ever since. I've never mm-hmm. stopped playing sports. I've always made a point to run, even when I was little. I like made a point to go for walks and bring my brothers with me. Um, so my five doctors are number one is Dr. Exercise, mm-hmm. um, which I, I paired now with Dr. Air because I, I'm, st- I'm just beginning to learn, like you said, bibliotherapy. I'm just beginning to learn about how important air is for our bodies and how, for keeping our bodies functioning properly. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of us are shallow breathers, which puts us in a, in a stress state. And wow. in fact, those that have, um, those that have overcome some trauma, um, they, they, uh, they are more likely to never take a deep breath outside of a yoga class. Like we're wow. not, you know what I mean? Because yeah. of that fight or flight mm-hmm. response, we're, we're not only always ready to go, like ready to run, ready for danger, but we're also not taking, inhaling a deep breath. We're mm-hmm. not filling our bodies with the rightful amount of, you know, rightful balance of the CO2 exchange that needs to happen when we breathe, yeah. um, which can cause so many other problems. So number one is taking those deep breaths or exercising, cardiovascular exercise specifically. So I've started every morning um, with a run. I rise and run like like it's like it's not even a question like it's just mm-hmm. like a natural part of my day now um but my other four doctors i'm not going to go on and on for like this forever <laughs> my other four doctors um dr water i drink a ridiculous amount of water um and i'm never dehydrated just keeping my muscles yeah. everything good doc and dr nutrition is also there i need 
I need to eat well to feel good. I can't, I'm, I'm not the kind of girl like mm-hmm. Canadians, they're, they're, there's like a fake national Canadian dish called a boutine, mm-hmm. um, which is basically fries with cheese curds and hot gravy on top that melts the cheese. Why does that sound so good? It sounds delicious. <laughs> But after eating one of those, it's like, I am on the, like, that puts me out. Like, I can't, yeah. I'm not moving. I don't feel good. My stomach, yeah, I know. you know what I mean? So Dr. Food is huge on my list. Like, I, I need to eat well. I need to, I need to add nutrients to my body. I can't just eat junk. I can't just mm-hmm. have a gluten and call it a dinner. Like, I'm just like, okay, if this is going to be this, the fake dinner, I'm making myself mm-hmm. a green smoothie on the side. Like, I, I'm always looking for a way to up my nutrient um, intake. Mm-hmm. Um, doctor sleep, I need to get those eight plus hours of sleep. Those mm-hmm. are crucial. Without it, I am a monster and my, my <laughs> children can attest to it. <laughs> and, uh, and last but not least is doctor laughter. Now, Aww. my brothers and I laugh so much. We laugh mm-hmm. so much. And I think it's and I think um, you can agree with this. A lot yes. of comedians, like if you think of, for example, Robin Williams, like he, you know, the way in which he, he took his own life and uh, mm. it's, it's tragic, but it really brought, uh, shown a light on, on comedians, like mm-hmm. those that, can, that want to make other people laugh the most sometimes have yeah. the most pain within themselves. Yes. And he yes. happened to be one of those. And it's mm-hmm. just... It's just heartbreaking how, mm-hmm. how, which can bring us to our next point, how some of the effects of trauma, some of the symptoms of trauma um, are almost celebrated, making, yeah. you know, that kind of inhibits mm-hmm. the, the healing from happening. You know what I mean? So true. Um, for example, for Robin Williams, his was making people laugh. Mm-hmm. But if you hear his story, like there's a lot of darkness there. But he became this clown that was like addicted to other people laughing. Mm-hmm. And, and he got celebrated for that over and over again. And in the end, if, if, if that ending is any indication, there's something that wasn't resolved there. You yeah. know what I mean? And maybe it wasn't because it was celebrated so much. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it actually just made me think of um, my university experience. Um, I was uh, relatively popular. Um, I, you know, loved clubbing. I loved going out. And honestly, everyone would celebrate my outrageous drunken behavior. Um, you know, I would get on polls. I would, you know, I became the life of the party. And Mm -hmm. despite the fact that that was a massive cover up so that no one could see how much I was hurting, literally, I would just, I would go, it would, honestly, this is one of the most horrible examples of it, but I would spend a whole day crying and beside myself staring in the mirror, not knowing what I was staring at as I was doing my makeup to go out. The second I walk into the party in the pre-drinks, everyone's like, Lucy, yeah, like doing shots in minutes, like, and everyone just loved that side of me. And I never got to really speak to people what was, what was troubling me. I just sort of Mm. wanted to be that person that everyone could come to for advice. And Mm. that person that, that, that was reliable and the person, almost like the parent I always wanted. But that exactly. ultimately ended up 
really destructive for me. I ruined my health in drinking. I, um, luckily it didn't ruin my grades by way of miracle because I didn't get hangovers, <laughs> but, um, in every other way I ruined, I pushed my, all my friends and relationships away. It was, it was really like a way in which I self-destructed, but even when I sort of came off alcohol, so I'm seven months sober now, um, which I'm really proud of. Um, even then it was hard because people would want me to drink because I was the fun person. Mm-hmm. And it completely proves your point entirely that sometimes these traits are celebrated so that it's almost as if like that will never be uncovered because it's so much harder to speak about it because you don't want people to perceive you as someone who isn't this extremely funny fun, you know, lovable, compassionate person. And you don't want people to think you're less brave. And that was really, really Mm. important for me. I didn't want people to think I wasn't brave anymore. Because of what you've gone through and what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. I, I am sober as well. I am, they call alcohol a downer for a reason. And the more, and like you said, that bibliotherapy, the more I read about what alcohol did to the body, but more specifically the mind, like, okay, beer belly, cool. What else? But the mind, like they call it a downer for a reason. Like even without any pre-existing mental health problems, coming down from alcohol, like that hangover state, yeah. is not only a physical feeling, it's a mental, there's a mental aspect there for you there mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I, I personally... I couldn't afford any more sadness. Like yes. I feel like I've had my my fair share of melancholy in my lifetime. By the age of seven, I've seen it all. I'm just like, mm-hmm. you know what? I, if I could not nurse a bloody adult back to health, I'd, I'd call myself a, like a success. Yeah, you know, um, I love that. <laughs> Absolutely. My, my partner actually always says, um, the fool who persists in his folly becomes wise, which means Mm -hmm. that, you know, for certain people, you have to kind of have that melancholy so, so, so much. And then you get to a point where you're like, no, I've had it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we spoke about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, we gave a little bit of stats about where our countries, but I wanted to speak a little bit more about how trauma affects us as a society, how, mm. how it shows up, how it can show up. Um, and right before pressing record on this, we always have the best conversations and it's actually the reason <laughs> why we're even having this podcast. Yes. But right before this, um, and I know we spoke a lot about racism and mm-hmm. I know this isn't an episode on race, but I do want, like, bear with me here. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the projects mm-hmm. specifically the projects in the United States. So for those yeah. that don't that aren't familiar, the project also known as the ghettos are um, segregated areas um, within big cities. So they call them like inner city areas that are low income housing. There's a a lot of poverty, and it can be maybe two, maybe three streets away from like the richest neighborhood. You know, um, so in that, on those streets, there's higher crime rates. Um, mm-hmm. there, there happens to be, that happens to be where the majority of the, the Black population of America resides. Um, and, and it's also over-policed. It's also where all, like, if there's going to be a police force in that city, you better believe they're going up and down that street, mm-hmm. just waiting for something to happen because, the chances are something's going to happen because 
when you put somebody in a state of desperation, you know, it's, it's crazy. But what I'm realizing here, so today the day is June 15th. And um, I feel like with events, um, like, with events like a death from, from an, from an innocent or, you know, from a person of color, from a man of color, what it's bringing up for people is the part that I'm really interesting, interested in, like the reaction, the, the riots, Mm -hmm. all of this, this very reactive, you know, response to the death of George Floyd, for example, Mm -hmm. what it's bringing up for people, I believe is, akin to to trauma like absolutely it's, it's almost like outside of like mm-hmm. a deeper sense of pain like it's yeah. absolutely and i think that emanates again in in not addressing trauma as the root problem here because there's the projects in america um people not having the same opportunities as other people and it's, just, it's mm-hmm. in in the uk it's not called the projects it's called council estates mm-hmm. um that's where i was um that's where i grew up a similar thing you get kicked out every now and then of different council properties and you have to go so it's creating even more instability for the young mind which is similar Mm. to what happens in the projects Mm. um and i think you know having a system and in a uk as well uh, black black people are three times more likely to uh, be arrested so although we don't have guns thank goodness um you know, it's, it's a problem and it's because they tend to be in these council estate areas and these projects. And, you know, it's, 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 it's overrepresented because we're not giving people equal opportunities to Mm -hmm. not be put in situations of trauma because Mm -hmm. parents who are suffering financially already have that struggle in their mind. So they can't give their all to their children. Absolutely. And trauma just breeds trauma. It's like a cycle, right? Yes. And if you even think like further back, like how mm-hmm. it came to even be that part, like the the inequality of of black people began at the foundation. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody like okay, cool. Slaves are free. What about the therapy needed to being treated like a slave for all of mm-hmm. those years, or for for being like a fourth generation slave, like? How am I supposed to function in society? Like it's it's just I just feel like there's so much there. There's so much there. Mm-hmm. There's so many layers here. Yeah. Um that it's, would help yeah, us understand. Absolutely. It's each because other. governments see crime. They see statistics, they see law and order. They don't they don't try and think why is someone committing a crime? Because if you're brought up um well off and you're brought up with two parents who love you the chances of you committing crime are very low unless you are a clinical narcissist or a psychopath or a sociopath. Mm-hmm. And that's just, there's no way to dispute that really. Mm-hmm. You know, crime occurs in, in areas of poverty and Absolutely. we don't, and the governments don't sit and think maybe it's got a link there between terrible parenting and awful education system, poverty and crime. They just want to create the, the, the situation where people are being police and having a justification for keeping the poor poor and it's you know it's a, it's a cycle it's not a system absolutely because a system would be and a perfect system i should say would be one that works a little bit more upstream you know yes. what i mean like yes. where we are now 
especially in the U.S., where they're over-policing the ghettos and mm-hmm. where where we are now, it's a very downstream response. We're, we're, yeah. It's like we're, we're, it's, we're responding to a problem, but we're not getting, the, we're not getting to the root mm-hmm. cause. Yeah. And um, a book called Upstream, and, I'm, and the author escapes me. It's a business book, actually, but, mm-hmm. I'm, but as somebody that cannot help but think of humanity <laughs> at yeah. any given moment, I always relate everything back to the world, how it, is, mm-hmm. how it affects the world, because yeah. international development, like the same goes for like entire countries. Mm-hmm like impoverished in the third world it's like how did they get here yeah how, like this didn't just happen last week like how did this even happen mm-hmm. um, it's it's not about take putting out the fires it's about getting rid of the matches yes know? yes i love that fine yeah getting to the source of the problem mm-hmm. i wish more attention was being paid yeah to to, to the children yeah absolutely the trauma and events absolutely. of childhood it needs to be a, it doesn't need, you know, it can't even be priority number three. It needs to be priority number one. Mm -hmm. And I really don't understand the justification surrounding not making it a priority. There was recent studies done by um, a gentleman named Robert Ander, who, these studies were conducted in America, which um, came out to conclude that child abuse costs um, in excess of cancer and heart disease. Like, let that sing in. The cost of trauma is more than the cost of cancer and heart disease put together. Wow. It's, it's, it's truly shocking. And, and he quantified that reducing child abuse in America will reduce depression by 50%, alcoholism by two thirds, and suicide wow. and domestic violence by three quarters. So wow. I don't even understand the justification based on the economy because this works out worse for the state because more and more people are locked up in prison for reasons that aren't their their fault and more and more people are turning to alcohol and getting antidepressants and turning to to um medication when 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 it all stems from something wider Mm -hmm. absolutely now it's 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 really it it numbs my mind and i feel Mm -hmm. like it's um more people need to communicate. More of these conversations need to happen. Yes. In order to get closer and closer to that reality that we both yes. see very clearly. Absolutely. Like, and this is why we created this podcast. But what do you think? Tell us, share your thoughts on our, on our social media accounts. Yes. What are your thoughts on, on childhood trauma? We're going to have some specific discussion questions for you on, the, yes, on our Instagram absolutely. page. So make sure you, you give us a follow at, at illuminating taboo on instagram (laughs) absolutely and honestly like if you have any questions or if you want to talk about your situations from some from two people who can genuinely say they understand uh we're here for you and we really want to it's important to us to open up this conversation because it's just so often left in the dark and people become so disturbed when actually trauma can be your superpower. I know for, for me and Cass, it's, it's embedded our purpose in life. You know, I want to become a human rights barrister and I also want to go to foster care um, institutions and foster care families and, and schools and talk and say, hey, look, you've got this. Mm-hmm. And 
even when, you know, I'm so besotted and is beside myself with PTSD and I can, I don't want to wake up and I become, you know, in this vacuum of, should I just end it? I can't because I know that the people that I can help is extraordinary. And as soon as you tap into that and see the purpose in your pain, it can really transcend everything that you've been through. That's gorgeous that's beautiful and i don't even want to i want to end right there thank you so much for listening to illuminating taboo and stay tuned for next week's episode bye for now bye-bye And that's the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening to our episode on childhood trauma. This was very, very personal. And I'm and we, I'm just so grateful that you're here with us. Thank you so much. And we hope that you found it interesting, Bessel van der Kolk's book as well. Um, you can buy this on Amazon or any sort of place that sells books, really. And that's where we kind of learned the framework of developmental trauma disorder, which we spoke about a lot. And we're really excited to engage with you. So when we publish this episode if you want to interact with us and share your comments share your stories we're really here to listen and there are so many unique stories out there that are just waiting to be heard so really channel your pain and make it your purpose and thank you so much for listening today we'll hope to see you next week Mm -hmm.